0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Everyone wants to create new products and services, find new customers and markets, stay ahead of the competition and work smarter instead of harder. Yet with all the focus and attention on innovation, the term has become an overused buzzword rather than a real, tangible concept. If you want to seriously pursue innovation, you need to strip away the hype. Real innovators need to transcend the existing ideas, rules, and patterns to discover exciting new outcomes. They must step outside the best practice box and get their hands dirty. The spirit of a true innovator is rooted in wanting to do something that has never been done before, to solve problems that have never been solved And to run through walls and leap over tall buildings to get there in his book our guest the retired chairman and ceo of cree a company that fundamentally changed the way people experience light and drove the obsolescence of the edison light bulb explains that innovation is fundamentally about people and tells us how to develop a mindset of creativity risk-taking and hard work he also instills a belief that there is always a better way we welcome author of The innovator Spirit, Discover the Mindset to Pursue the Impossible. Chuck Swoboda, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Before we even start today's show, Chuck, I thought we'd start the way you do in the book, where you pose a question to the reader, and we'll do it here to the listener, and then we'll answer that at the end of today's show like you do in the book. Let's get into that. So how many barbershops are there in New York City?
0: Well, we're not going to give the answer yet, but... The funny part about that story is is it's actually an interview question. When I was running Cree and I was talking to people and trying to figure out if they were going to be wired for this thing we called innovation, I kind of needed to get at some of their characteristics and one of the things I wanted to know is how they would deal with this concept of uncertainty. And so I would put that question out there and while we were sitting in the conference room, I'd say, "I want you to figure it out." And it was less about what their answer was and more about could they process through it and come up with something real time. And what I learned is that, you know, if you were uncomfortable in that situation and in that moment, you probably weren't going to enjoy this adventure we were going to be on every day, which is you'd start out with an idea of what you think you're going to do. You'd learn something you didn't expect and you'd have to change and keep adapting. And so to me, that story was kind of a way to do that. and. uh In fact, one time I used it with a group of uh, young entrepreneurs. I was actually speaking uh, at a morning session and they said, hey, let's give a warm-up exercise. And I said, I have one. And so you can imagine a room, about 300 young professionals, and they're sitting at these big tables and we need to give them something to do for five or 10 minutes to kind of get to know each other. And so I said, look, what I want you all to do in your groups, wherever you're sitting, is answer that question. How many barbers are there in New York? And after about 10 minutes, I said, all right, let's stop. I want to see where you're at. And I said, okay, who here heard that question and thought, okay, he's just throwing something crazy out there. It's not serious. Let's just keep talking amongst ourselves. And I'd say probably about uh, roughly 30% of the room raises their hands. said, okay. I said, who here started to work on it as a group, but kind of got stuck and realized, hey, I don't have enough information. And I'd say probably about another half of the room. So about 80% of the room is in one of those first two categories. And then I said, who here has an estimate or an answer? for? It? And about 20% of the tables raised their hand. And then I looked at them and I said this, I said, for the first group, the ones that thought it was kind of a silly question, totally respect that, but you would never want to come work at Cree. So don't ever consider that. And I said, for the second group, it's great that you tried. But if you got frustrated and, and didn't keep going, I totally respect that. But you probably also wouldn't like coming to work for our company either. And I said, for the third group, if you came up with something, I don't care what the answer is. What I want you to realize is if you ever get sick of what you're doing today, give me a call. You might really enjoy what we're doing. And what's interesting, in that moment, you could see about 80% of the people at first are a little bit of offended. I'm telling them, don't come work for our company. And what I explained was, is it's okay. This is not a judgment. This is a, if you're going to pursue your career, you need to figure out what you're good at and what you like doing. And I need to figure that out because if I bring in people that aren't wired for the problem we're trying to solve, it's not going to be good for any of us. And so it's okay wherever you fall on that spectrum, but it's kind of like why I tell people innovation isn't the best solution to everyone's problem. It, you have to be in the right situation.
1: I love this honesty that's peppered throughout the book. You write through scar tissue, which is fantastic because it's not just theory-based. And one of those pieces of honesty comes right up front in the preface of the book. And you talk about what so many CEOs must actually feel, that once you become CEO, you start avoiding making mistakes rather than embracing innovation. Your priority shifts to shareholder return and no longer to driving innovation, which created that shareholder value in the first place. And you say this was akin to a golf analogy that the older you get, the worse you put. So let's share this because this is what's so appealing for me about the book is that this scar tissue of experience and the good and bad sides of being a CEO are shared amidst this world, particularly now that's in desperate need of innovation.
0: I love the golf analogy and just, you know, I'm not much of a golfer. My son is, but I played a lot and I always thought that analogy of so why do you get worse at putting is just the easiest way to think about this right? You, at some point, if you fail enough, you either start to think about that failure before you pursue it, or you've become accustomed to it and you're unafraid of it, right? And so what happened for me is in the beginning, you now I was, I was a thirty-four year old CEO of a public company, so I know very little. I think I know a lot, but I don't know actually very much, but I have all the confidence in the world. And so we charged after markets and problems, and I was truly unafraid of failing because I figured we'd just figure it out. As the company grew and had success, you start to get rewarded for the success. And when you get rewarded for the success, these feedback loops come up where it's it's your shareholders or your board members, or just think about how we pay and compensate people. They don't pay you or compensate you as a CEO because you took some great risks and failed a bunch. They pay you because you hit your numbers and the stock price went up. Full stop. Like there's very few CEOs that get to keep their job if the stock price keeps going down or is unpredictable. And so what happened was, is I start out in this mode, being part of this small company that was very innovative. And after the quarters wore on, there's so much feedback of, hey, Thanks for doing that, but I don't like that result. Fix that. That we started to put in place more and more of these things to essentially reduce risk, prevent failure and deliver predictability. You know, in the simplest form, you're measured every 90 days on the quarter. So you want to, whatever you sign up for in those 90 days, your job is to try to make that happen or a little bit better. And if that's your mindset, you will fundamentally stop taking some of the bigger risks so the things early on we did at Cree when you know we had to invent the blue light first or then we had to invent you know a white light or or go after technology and markets where the biggest lighting company said it will never work we were we were fearless we had nothing to lose so we went for it but then when you start to have that success and all of a sudden people saying hey this is great look at how successful you've been your mindset shifts and so you know the realization to me really came from I was sitting there um, and I'd been the CEO for 16 years and a quarter and yes, I actually started counting earnings calls somewhere around 30 or 40. so I was the CEO for <laughs> I was the CEO for 65 earnings calls and what you realize is is that you start counting and you start remembering all the things, that could go wrong this time and so I'm sitting there saying goodbye to the employees on my last day after I'm retiring and I realize you know this company that I'm walking away from there's so many things that I'm leaving that aren't actually the way I wish they were they're we're not as innovative as we were and you know I don't actually even like it as much as I did before and it's not that the company wasn't doing well it's I didn't enjoy being a part of it because All the things that I originally did and we did as a team to become innovative, in fact, these are the things that when I left my first job in corporate America, right, at Hewlett-Packard, I said I would never do again. The end of 16 years as being CEO, I was doing all of them. And they were the right thing to do what the shareholders were asking us to do, but they weren't the right thing for innovation. And more importantly, they weren't the right things for me anymore. And I think it was really... Hard to come to that realization, and I, I fully didn't appreciate it until I got away from it. And I really had to step back to understand it and see it.
1: So let's stay on this for a little while. The idea of getting shackled in your ways, and particularly success, can be a beast and trap you in a way. And you pose a question that sums it all up really. And you, you ask, which is better: to promise three percent growth and hit five percent, or promise twenty percent and hit ten percent? And most people will promise the three and hit the five because this resonates so much i used to do this myself all the time where i'd promise much more than i would achieve but i'd achieve much more than the people who would promise a lower goal and they'd get rewarded and it used to drive me crazy you're kind of going well for being ambitious you're actually getting you're getting punished for that and that becomes a mindset of a business then as a result and if you think about it that's a learned behavior
0: right so you know one of the things people ask me about is so wait a minute so if Cree was different, what is this, you know, this mindset idea? And and what I'm getting at is at first, when I, early on at Cree, if, if we would have had this conversation a decade ago, I would have told you people either thought this way or they didn't. I really kind of thought you were kind of, at some point you become wired this way. And then the question was, can you learn it or how do you learn it? And what I realized is our beliefs that drive our behaviors are a function of experiences that we've had. And so in your case, if you keep stretching and deliver a better result but miss your goal, and the other guy does it and gets rewarded, at some point, if you stay a part of that organization, you're gonna go, well, this is a stupid idea. I'm gonna take the other approach. There's no there's no reward in in what I'm trying to do. And in so many ways, our behaviors. And traditional organizations are designed to get at that exact same idea. It's this idea that avoiding risk is better than taking risk, right? Or, hey, you're rewarded for achieving best practice when you and I both know that if you would do the best practice, that means you can't be any better than somebody else because they've already done it. So if you actually want to do things like innovation, best practice is a cop-out. Yet in most organizations... You're rewarded to hit your plan and follow best practices. It's it's, it's completely counterintuitive. So if you're going to go down this path, and, and one of the things that happened at Cree, and I didn't, you know, I need to be honest, I didn't appreciate it while it was happening to me. Only in hindsight can I relate this, but we really, it was all about who is the most helpful to us getting to these really big goals. And we had such big goals. I mean, we were we were working on new material systems. We were trying to create physics that no one knew how it worked yet. So if you're going to go do stuff like that, you're basically, every day you're setting out for something that you don't know if it's possible or not, that culture, you, you actually create a culture that rewards people that go for it. And then when they come up short, but they learn something, that's what you reward instead of, hey, the person that, you know, signs up for this small number, or, you know, it, it's, it's the... When I was early in my career, I remember a sales guy uh, uh, at HP came in and on the first month of the new year had hit all of his sales goals for the year because he kept all of the orders that he had saved up at the end of the year in his desk. And he didn't enter them until after he got a low quota set so he could hit his number and get his bonus. And I was like, that is the most messed up system. And yet in most organizations, that's exactly what the metrics we create unintentionally do. They do it intentionally, but we don't think about what they do. So one of the things we try to do at Cree is to get people to realize we're not, if you sign up for X and you get there, great. We we reward contribution, not just performance to what you sign up for. And contribution can come in the form of getting to a really big number. In some cases, we rewarded contribution that was, you tried three things, none of them worked, but we now know something that nobody else knows. Because when you're pursuing something like innovation, right, you need to know what you don't know. And so the people that were good at that is who we rewarded. And the way we did that, honestly, is, is a culture that was a little bit about typical quarterly cash bonuses and much more about equity ownership. And you know, one of the things I hate is that in the last 20 years, we've kind of made this idea of employee ownership not nearly as popular as it used to be. But we literally treated everyone in the company in the early days as an owner
1: yeah and i love that and that guy you mentioned in hp i had a similar experience like where you're driving digital transformation and in the early days of any product you can't predict what the revenue is going to be and one month you might have a killer month because you might hit it out of the park and the next you don't you're even learning things like seasonality and i suffered the exact same thing where you had colleagues who were essentially buying the money by giving kickbacks and the profitability even of their product was way less and it was a dying product but they were the heroes and they were the ones that were celebrated in the business for being consistent. And I understand the predictability thing, but it absolutely kills behaviors. And this brings me to a brilliant thing that you used to do in Cree. And this was even before your time and even part of your hiring with into the business, which was to understand somebody's mindset from an interview on the basketball court. (laughs) Yes. So you know, I, I'm working at HP, and I meet these Cree
0: guys, and they said, hey, come on out. We want you to come talk to us about an interview. And and you need to understand, I'm I'm working for, at the time, Hewlett Packard's like the cool company, right? It's like working for Google today. And so they fly me out to Raleigh, North Carolina uh, from Silicon Valley. They won't let me in the building, by the way, because they're so paranoid about their secrets. So my entire interview is being done in the booth of a restaurant at a local local diner and then at lunchtime they go hey let's go play basketball and they had told me to bring my shoes and i was like okay i guess i can we go out and we play a game of basketball and it's myself ceo uh pretty much all the founders there's a i think it was a four-on-four game and they played this game like they were playing for the ncaa championship now these are brilliant scientists not brilliant athletes um so, but what they lacked in athletic ability, they made up for an in intensity, the ability to throw elbows, um, a lot of arguing about the physics of who that ball went off of. It can't have gone off of me because physics, I mean, literally we would have arguments about the trajectory of the ball. <laughs> but in any case, I'm playing this game and they are playing hard and I survived the game and it was, it was kind of fun. It was a, it was a bit of an intimidating experience and and at the moment, they were just doing it because they wanted to play basketball at lunch. Well, I end up joining Cree and realize we did this with every interview candidate. And what it became was, and it was a bit unintentional in the beginning, it became this way of people try to, in an interview, try to tell you who they want you to think they are, right? A resume is a sales document. It's not a reality. On a basketball court, you get someone running up and down the court. You put them under pressure in the moment. Pass them the ball. Do they pass it back? Do they shy away from contact? What happens in all these moments And all of a sudden their true character gets revealed? And more importantly, a startup is like a big team, right? It's, it's changing every moment of the day. You get to see, can they handle it? And if they didn't like it, they probably weren't going to like working at Crete. And if they did, independent of their skill, they were going to be fine. And so, by the way, we put some people out there that had really never played basketball. They came out and said, I'll give it a shot. Let's try it. You could even tell there that it had nothing to do with their skill. It was their attitude that said, okay, they're going to be just fine when we hit a problem because they're not even any good at this and they're not afraid to try and find a role and find a way to contribute given whatever skill set they have at the moment. And so It was this really interesting insight into human character that I wish in hindsight we could have done it forever. We got bigger. We couldn't keep doing it. it. It just became impractical, but probably for four or five years, just about every person who joined the company or didn't was interviewed by playing basketball. Lunch,
1: yeah, and we'll come back to how the scaling of the business actually can kill innovation a little bit, and something that you observed and really then doubled down on when you were leaving and you wrote about this. But we've just completed on the show here a seven-part series with the brilliant founder and CEO of Visa D. Hawk, and D. Dedicated a long time to releasing people from the shackles of organizational control, and what I mean there is he created principles and values and a mindset within the business, and then let people figure out the problems for themselves. So he really empowered human ingenuity. And it was really heartening coming to the end of that documentary that I was reading your book. And it was heartening to see that part of what you did in Cree was exactly this. And you say, and I love this quote, in our people-driven approach, we gave up on control and predictability and bet on our people to find a better way. You know, it's interesting that that's a little bit out of necessity, too. So, think
0: about you're this small company and you're working on these new problems that no one's ever taken on before. You know, one of the things that when you're the little guy taking on and understand at this moment in time, you know, our competitors are billion dollar divisions of even larger companies, right? So, we are this tiny group of guys and and women in North Carolina with these cool ideas, not a lot of money, competing with people with ten to hundred times more, you know, time resources. You know, they have all the all the quote benefits. They also had this to manage that. They had a bunch of processes that allowed them to control that. Well, our goal was to innovate as fast as possible, and what we became apparent was is that. The benefits of process that the control slow you down incredibly. So instead, what we would say is, look, we're going to kind of, we're going really fast. We've never done some of these things. We're going to bet on you. So when you come to work here, you're going to first day going to go, wow, like, how do I do that? We're going to say, I don't know, just figure it out. And they're going to say, well, what's the process you want me to use? And we're going to say, we don't have one. Just, Figure it out. Let's see what it takes. The goal is how do we solve that problem in front of us? And we're open minded to try anything to get there. And so it was essentially the bet was people, if you empowered them, could change and adapt to new information far faster and better than any kind of structured approach. And so what we were trading off was a speed and the ability to change. And we gave up control on the other things. And so in the early days, that would allow us to you know go into work one morning thinking this is the idea we're going to try we know it's going to work by the end of the day hey we ran those experiments it didn't work at all we're going to change completely so there were days we could change the process from the beginning of the day to the end of the day on how we were making things because we figured out it didn't work so just change it and that mindset went across the organization you know whether we did that in R&D or manufacturing with a customer I mean, to give you an idea, I went to see a customer one time, I literally land, I think I'm in Germany, trying to sell this great new blue LED chip we'd just come up with. And I go to a customer and I sample and I tell them, this is the best new product we're going to ever have. And that night I call back and calling back back then was a little bit more complicated. So I get on the phone, use my AT&T international calling card, and I'm talking to the guys in North Carolina, I said, hey, guess what? You know those samples we gave you? And that data sheet? Yep. That product actually doesn't work. What do you mean it doesn't work? Well, actually, since you left, we did some testing. It's a bad idea. We're going to change to this new product. Okay. What do you want me to do? I said, well, they said, well, keep giving them samples of the old product, but tell them it's a different product and see how they react. And we'll use that information to kind of tune it in before we send them the next batch. So literally like in between one day's trip to the next, I'm changing the story completely. But what's interesting is people are actually pretty good at that. And that information we had allowed us to change the product. I found out some stuff the next two days talking to customers. We adapted it. I said, hey, these are some early prototypes. I started telling them they weren't finished samples. And then two weeks later, we gave them the new ones and off we went. But if you live in a process-driven environment, you just can't make changes at that rate. And the fact is, is that, you know, my, one of my personal philosophies I hung on my wall that was part of our values was assume everything you do today can be done better tomorrow. And if you start with that idea, you, by definition, don't allow yourself to get locked in. Because you know we talk about the process limiting us, we actually limit ourselves, right? You know, If you have a great idea and it's working really good, it's going to be pretty hard to convince you to try something else that might not work because, hey, this is working good. Why would I screw it up? but if you truly believe in innovation you know for sure that there's something better than what you're doing now because if you ever stop believing that someone's going to catch you
1: and you talk there about the limitations and this is a really important element of the innovator spirit and i'm really fascinated by mental models chuck and how our experience of things is impacted by the way we're trained to think about them and this is the idea of thinking within within a box or within limitations of some sort and in that mindset Within an organization, we're trained to think about org charts in a similar way. And this is key to your success in Cree was the idea of flattening that org chart. And I love the exercise where you asked people to fill in a blank org chart for the organization before they started. So let's share a little bit about this one. This is brilliant.
0: Yeah, so we would sit in a conference room and this is typically they would get this question after they got the question about the barbers. And I would draw a set of a circle, like an org chart on the board. And I'd have one at the top and two at the next level. And then I'd have four or five along the bottom. And I'd hand the whiteboard marker to someone. I'd say, okay, I want you to think about how you think we're structured at Crete. And I want you to think about it not like job job titles, but functions. And so you you have the executive team and you have sales and marketing and R&D and all these things. We're in the business of innovation. I want you to write down where you think these different pieces are. And typically what would happen is you know, someone would put executives at the top, so the CEO and others at the top, and then depending on what function they were in. And so, by the way, I didn't do this with just engineers. I did this with everyone. So if the guy was uh, applying for a job in finance, they asked the question. I could ask a lawyer this, an HR person, an ops person, R&D sales didn't matter. And invariably, they would take whatever function they were in, and it would become one of the next two. So pretty much, they always put the CEO at the top, they put their function and something else in the middle, and then they just decide to put the rest at the bottom, because that's all I left. And I said, so tell me how that's going to optimize innovation. And they'd go, well, and you kind of get this blank stare. And I said, well, let me show you how I would do it. And what I would do is I would write at the top, I would say, All businesses are about optimizing their constraint for what's most important to that business. So if you're in the innovation business, the most important thing are the resources that generate the ideas that solve these problems. So in our case, that's typically what I would call the R and D function. And it's not necessarily just that department, but people that serve in that role, they could be in other parts. So I'd write that at the top. And then I said, what are the two things that you need? If you have a great idea to create value. from, And one is you got to have a customer that cares about it. So I would put sales slash marketing because I said they would represent the customer. And I say on the other side is you have to have someone to take that idea and make it at a le- quality and a cost. that The person wants to buy it and you can make a profit. At. Those are my top three. And then I would write all the rest at the bottom, including myself as the CEO. and typically people would look at me a little bit confused and go, what do you mean you're at the bottom? And I said, think about it this way. Yes, in an org chart, I'm technically the boss. I'm ultimately responsible. That's not what I'm saying. But when you make decisions each day, people confuse the org chart with how you should optimize decision making. What I'm giving you is how you want to optimize decision making. So what I want to do is I want, the people that are most critical to coming up with new ideas to solve problems, to be I want what they do every day optimized to do that and as little of all the other overhead. So if you're the head of finance and you've got some great new idea to improve the efficiency of finance, but it in some way de-optimizes my R&D guys like, hey, I'm going to make all the R&D guys, I'm going to save a purchasing clerk and instead teach every scientist to place their own purchase orders. So I'm going to take a scientist, which there aren't enough of in the world in my particular area, and I'm going to have them spend some of their time doing something I could hire a purchasing clerk to. That's a horrible idea, but that's what most organizations do. So I said, that's why they're at the top. And I said, the second group is manufacturing. Look, they've got to work with the R&D team to figure out how to take their ideas and make them, but they shouldn't be wasting a bunch of their time serving the needs of the rest of the organization. Because the fact is, is that The CEO is overhead, and so is everyone else. And we're important to make an organization work, but if you optimize around my needs or the finance team's needs or HR's needs, you're going to miss out on what this business is designed to do. And so you started to get very different behaviors. And I would tell you, I did it for two reasons. That is philosophically how we were going to act later, but I wanted that person in that room to decide if they wanted to be part of that organization. now. You tell an R&D guy this, they want to come work for you. No problem. But you tell someone that works in finance or legal or HR or other executive roles that they're not they're not optimized around them. We're optimizing ourselves around the other people. You get some people who go, "Whoa, that's not for me." And that was okay. I wanted people to self-select not to come to the company because if that wasn't going to work for them, I wasn't going to be able to change their mind once they got there. It was I needed them to come in open-minded to that that's how we were going to do this because if they had spent 20 years, and I'll give you an example, if they had spent 20 years at IBM, a place that had incredibly brilliant people, but they believed there was a process, there was an IBM way of doing things. When they got to Korea and we didn't do it that way, like I had some of those brilliant people come and struggle because they couldn't make our approach work. So part of this is, I think too often when we're talking to people, we're looking at their resume and what their expertise is, but we forget it. What we need is people to can apply their expertise in the way the organization is optimized to do. And by the way, if you weren't in the innovation business, I would change what those circles are, right? So whatever your business is, there is a constraint and that's what you should optimize. And what's funny is it's actually just basic manufacturing
1: theory of constraint stuff applied to organizational behavior. I often think of those circles, the way you drew them out in the book and the diagram, the closer together they are, the more opportunity for the dots to connect. And you talk about that innovators need to walk the talk and you say innovation is messy and therefore the CEO needs to be really involved. And we had Alex Osterwalder, the creator of the business model canvas on the show recently. And he says, In the current world, a CEO needs to spend 40% of their time on innovation work, and it appeared to me that you certainly did this, and you like to be close to the problems. And there's a huge added benefit of this being close and having an overview, because if you as CEO can connect the dots and spot patterns, you can link the right people together and create combinations that others would never have thought of. And this happened to you in Cree, where you spotted some opportunities. I'd love if you'd share this. You know,
0: one of the challenges I think we have, especially, you know, as you take on a management or a leadership role in a large organization, it gets really complicated, right? And it's easy to want to delegate it out to other people. It's a natural process. The challenge is when you're pursuing innovation, you're going to get into some problems where, you know, you kind of start on a direction, you're getting new information all the time. And so, whether you like it or not, there are boundary conditions in people's minds that get in their way. And so, one of the things I like to do is, I like to keep myself involved, at least at some level, in all the major, what I'll call innovation initiatives. And in one case, I'll give you an example. We were developing the Cree LED bulb, and we were in a meeting one day, and they were talking about, we're not sure we can make our target. So we we needed to sell this Cree LED light bulb for less than $10. and needed to have a certain amount of light come out of it in a certain way, and it had to use a certain amount of energy, right? So you're balancing these three parameters, and we get to the point, and the guys are like, "It's not going to work." And I said, "Well, why not?" And they said, "Well, to get to the light output and the power savings, we need twice as many LEDs, so we can run them at lower current because they're more efficient. They use less energy, so we can hit the efficiency spec. But we need way more LEDs, and if we put all those LEDs in there, the cost will be too high." And I said. The cost will be too high. I said, What cost for the LEDs are you using? They said, Well, finance said each LED costs, I'll make up a number. Let's just say at the time they say they cost 10 cents each. And I said, But these LEDs we're making in our own factory. And if I'm making them in my own factory and I know I have extra capacity, they don't cost me five cents. They just cost me some very small incremental variable cost because If I don't make these LEDs, all my fixed costs are the same. So the reality is these LEDs cost very little, just the incremental materials and labor. And in a semiconductor business, to give you an idea, that's less than half the real number. And I said, here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to assume that the LEDs are free and just solve the other problem. Because I'm willing to bet that the the variable costs will be so low when we ramp up this extra volume we'll make it work. Now, some people say, well, so how did you make that decision? Well, look, one, I'd spent many years in the business, so I understood how our cost worked. But more importantly, what I realized is there was no other person on the team that could say, hey, it's okay to kind of break this rule. And so as a leader, it's not necessarily, I didn't have the great idea. What I could see is there was a constraint coming up. That the organization would have definitely gotten stuck on that I was allowed to free them of because I understood how the pieces work. And that would happen all the time where, and and, and what I'd say in most organizations, the boss says, hey, you sign up for a goal, right? And you say, hey, I'm going to deliver X, Y, and Z by this date. And you start going after it and you realize, well, I can get X and Y done, but I can't get Z, but I promise the date and people get stuck. Do I push the date or do I work on Z? And the reality is, is that it's probably some combination in between. If the leaders involved, instead of watching teams spin for days and weeks, getting stuck on that, you can go time out guys. The reality is, is the date is more important than getting that third parameter. Let that other one's good enough. Let's put it in the market and see what happens. And we'll figure out the other piece later. As a leader, you can help people breakthrough barriers that they just can't get through otherwise, but you can't if you're not in the details. And so this idea you can sit at 30,000 feet and kind of remote control this thing, when the variables are changing every day, it doesn't work because you cannot anticipate all the constraints they're going to see.
1: We alluded to this one, Chuck, already, which is one of the parts of the innovator spirit is perseverance and overcoming any obstacle. And you talk about how success can kill innovation. And it happened a little bit in Cree at certain periods of time, particularly as you scaled and managers were put in leadership roles. And as a result, innovation suffered. But let's interweave this story with the spinning out of the power and the part of the business and how perseverance, the innovator spirit, paid off.
0: Yeah, so basic challenge here is that when you approach innovation, you know going in that you have this idea you think is going to work. But once you've gone through it a bunch of times, you have a goal. But most of the things you think are going to work are actually not going to work. The key is to try them, learn something, adapt, and move on. And so you start to develop this rhythm of, okay, I think I know, I'm going to try it, and you you become okay with learning as you go. And you know we like to use this concept so often, resiliency. But I think people think resiliency is something you magically give someone. No, it's learned behavior. Right? You survive enough failures and keep going. That's how you become resilient. So what happened in power and RF was Cree was growing very fast, and you know the first big business at Cree was making LEDs, and that was our biggest business and most profitable. And then we got into the lighting business, and that business starts to grow tremendously fast. I think it went from 150 million to 800 million dollars in revenue in three years. So this business is taking off. So we, Cree is becoming this very big LED and lighting company, and we have this third piece. Which is what we call power and RF, and so these are devices that they were on the roadmap when I joined the company in 1993. But we're now talking about 2015, 16, 2017, and those ideas that are on the roadmap, we still haven't actually made them work yet. So we keep pushing, but we're not getting there. So at one point, you know, we're getting pressure from the shareholders. You know, what can we do to create more value? And it's been 25 years we've been working on this power RF. We're having a little bit of technical success, but really no market success. And so what we finally decide is, is that we need to get some recognition for this. Let's spin out part of the business because I think if people could see the long-term potential, there'd be something great. So my idea was we would spin out part of it, keep majority shares, but let people kind of see it and track it separately. And this is what I'm trying to do at this moment is. I'm trying to help the shareholders see this future value in something that's buried inside the rest of the company. Now, I'm also trying to take some pressure off myself because I'm under pressure to claim the company's more, we want the stock price to go up. So the idea is they could see the value, they'll make the stock price go up. In the process of trying to do that spin out, several companies realize we're thinking about this and approach us. And at one point, one of us offers, one company, Infineon, offers us, I believe it was around eight. $100 100 million US dollars for a business that does a little over 100 million in revenue and basically doesn't make any profits yet. On a net basis, it's a break even business. And I'm going, that 800 million, the investors currently view that worth zero. So after a lot of discussions, we said, you know what? I think we need to sell it to them. So we go through a process deciding to spin out this business and sell it. And I would tell you that that was a bit controversial. There's parts of the people at the Cree team who were pretty frustrated that they weren't going to be part of CREA anymore. But the reality was, is that there was this other company that was going to pay us you know, eight times what our current shareholders valued it for. Well, in the process, we negotiate a deal, we sign it, we spend a year trying to get it approved. It's not approved by the government. Politics in the US change, and basically the government decides that no company that's not a US company can buy this technology. It's potentially too important. So we're going to keep it. During this time, The products start getting designed in. And so this thing that I had been working with and the team had been working for 25 years that I, frankly, had started to give up on keeps going and they start getting designed into things like electric vehicles. Next thing we know, that business goes from neat technology, not many customers designs to, wow, we're fully sold out for the next few months. Wow. There's more demand. like. We're not only in electric vehicles, but we're in 5G base stations. People start showing up. I want more. Next thing we know, within six months, we have sold all of our capacity for the next two years and are putting in place a plan to double the factory and spending about $200 million to expand capacity. And what it was a story to me was, is I thought of myself as someone who was really good in making the long bet and betting on these things. But even I eventually got frustrated and let the pressures of creating shareholder value now convince me to try to sell this thing. That business today is now not yet the biggest business, but it is what's driving the valuation of the company. And most people believe that over the next few years, the entire company will be primarily valued based on that business that I tried to sell that if i would have just given it a more time i would have never gotten up. Now that being said, you could also argue that the process of trying to sell it raised the visibility of the business and maybe got us designed in some places, but that's probably me as a ceo trying to make myself feel better for the fact that i almost <laughs> sold for the fact that i almost sold what be, what is going to become the most valuable part of the company and but it's an idea that even even someone like me who is used to long bets at some point you tend to give up. And uh, you know the history of some of the great technologies is it didn't take five years or 10 years. They took 20 or 30 years. I mean, you know, just look at when the internet first came out. From the days of the first internet being available to when it really became a successful business was a long time.
1: Coming back to the innovator's spirit and some of the behaviors that are necessary to be an innovator, we had recently on the show Amy Edmondson, who's the mother of the term psychological safety. And she talks about psychological safety being paramount to any successful organization. And one of the outputs is having the confidence to pitch a half-baked idea. Now, the flip side of this is having the psychological safety to call out that idea as being stupid. And you tell us the ability to face brutal facts is part of an innovator's DNA. Yeah,
0: you know, it's interesting. I am I was not familiar with her work when I was working at Cree. But since then, since I wrote the book and built wrote that chapter... I've had a chance to read her work, and she is she really captures something intellectually that I learned just basically through experience. So I go to work for Cree, and you know I'm a 26 year old guy. I've been working in industry for about four years. I join this crazy group of scientists trying to build this startup, and I get invited to my first Cree management meeting, and I'm all excited, and I go in there, and I'm sitting down in the room, and my boss, who's the CEO. Hands out a piece of paper to start the meeting and says, Hey, before we get started, I want you all to read it because I want to talk about this. And I flip over the piece of paper and it's an email that I had written to a customer the week before. And he has circled the first sentence and in it, I have a grammatical error. And I'm like, Oh no, this is going to suck. Like I'm some combination. of embarrassed, frustrated, and maybe even a little bit mad. And as I'm sitting there going, what the heck am I going to do? It starts to dawn on me that he launches in and says, Look, here's an email we wrote to a customer. We're an early stage company. We need every customer we have. We can't afford to make sloppy mistakes. And this is the case of just being sloppy. And we've got to be better than this. He wasn't insulting me. He was making a point to the whole team that the fact was I had made a mistake and made a mistake and I was sloppy and there was something that I could and should do about it, and it was up to me to hear it. And that was kind of my first experience in this. You've got to be prepared to deal with the brutal truth. Now, the subtlety I learned there was, and I learned this by immersion therapy, otherwise known as you survived it, Um, but I, I appreciated the fact that everyone, and I believe this, was there to try to solve a problem and make the company better. I was inherently willing to buy into that and I think the others on the team were too. And so we built a culture around that idea. I think what challenge for most people is, in, so we essentially had psychological safety. The CEO of Shopify wanted every employee to be responsible for their own mental health. So instead of this idea that I'm supposed to make you comfortable with it, let's start with the idea that you have to start with, you're going to be comfortable, you're going to assume what I'm saying is about the problem and not the person. And what's interesting in our case is when you flip it around that way, getting to this point of psychological safety, which we didn't call it that, I didn't even know what the term was at the time, works much better because there's an, I think one of the things we miss so often is we assume that the communicator has all the responsibility, but the person hearing this has an equal responsibility to hear it and take it the right way. And if you start there with that assumption, that that's what we're all going to believe to begin with, it's way easy to build this culture around it. And if you start with the assumption that, hey, you're making me feel bad, this is personal, you'll never get there. And so for us, the trick was to really reinforce this idea and then never stop doing it. Because one of the challenges is is that as you bring in new people to the organization, there's this pressure. To, oh, we should be nicer to each other. And the fact is, is that if you stop working on the hard facts and instead dance around issues, it will take you five, 10 times longer to get to the problem. And you know we're in a race of time, right? Innovation's about getting there first. You have to have as much of your energy on the real problem and as little on the distractions around it. And so that was our approach. We called it the brutal truth. And uh, it became a really interesting process to the point where we turned it into a formal step of Our business review process. So when we would present to our board, each of the business leaders was asked to start with the brutal truths about their business. So they would start. So you're running a business and your first job is to present to the board, all the things about your business that are screwed up, all the bad things. And what was interesting is in the beginning, people found it very hard, but in the end, it changed the, co- we had conversations that were so value added with our board because we were dealing with reality instead of someone trying to make you feel good about it. The fact is telling your board, everything's okay. They can't help you very much. If you tell them what your problems are, these are typically smart business people. Let them see them and help them get some great advice. And if you're open-minded that you go a lot further, a lot faster. So that was the concept. It was not easy to do every day. But it certainly was a powerful tool. And what I've seen in other companies, whether it be you know, Shopify quoted, if you look at Pixar, they call it a, a culture of candor is the term they used. And even Intel's been famous for their really brutal confrontational style. You'll see this theme over and over again. It wasn't just at Cree, but it's in a lot of other companies that they're the really great problem solvers and innovators tend to be comfortable going right at the problem and not wasting a lot of time on the niceties.
1: Yeah. And I love this because I'm from a sporting background and feedback is everything. And knowing what you did well, doesn't really help you get better. And I love the way you use this at a board level, because if you think about so many boards, I'm sure the people in the board have sat on boards and I know you're a chairman. It can be frustrating because you're kind of feel a little bit like a spare tool. You're you're not really used. Where you could be adding serious value. And then when you do add value, there can be a feeling that you're being a naysayer when you're actually being a gainsayer, trying to add value to the business because that's your job. But you brought it right back to the hiring level. And I love this. And I was laughing when the little anecdotes you tell about yourself, you were like the three hours nurse in the hospital, avoiding people getting to the doctor, trying to avoid the wrong people getting into the business. You brought brutal truths. Into the hiring process? Yeah. So, one of the things I would do is, you know, my
0: goal in an interview was I I assumed by the time I was talking to them that they had some qualifications on their expertise that would make them useful to to helping our business. But what I had learned is that, you know, Cree was built with a bunch of non experts. And in fact, you know, one of the things I talk about is there is a real risk when you're doing innovation, filling your company full of experts because. You know, there's an old saying that uh, an expert knows what's not possible. So we were very comfortable taking people with less expertise, but the right mindset or cultural biases. And so what I was trying to get at in those interviews was, were you biased to think the right way? So whether it be that where we started this conversation was, could you deal with uncertainty? You know, I wanted to know how they thought about failure. So one of the things I always asked every interview candidate was, is, I never asked them about their biggest success. I wanted to know about their biggest failure. And I pushed them really hard. And in fact, sometimes people say, well, my biggest failure I've been told is I work too hard. And I say, come on, tell me something real that you fail at, because that's pretty useless. What did you really fail at? And what did you learn? And for people that were good at being able to look back at what they failed at and learned, like, hey, they'll do well here. And the ones that couldn't, it didn't mean they weren't smart, talented people. But they weren't going to like being in that environment where we were going to challenge their failure all the time. The other thing I would do is I was always looking to see, hey, how do they deal with this idea of ownership? So you know, we're going to take on problems and we know we don't know the answer. And so you're going to sign up for a goal and we may or may not get there. And I need you to assume it's your fault, even if in many places you might not be. You need to be able to have some ownership for this thing, whether or not it's really your problem or not. So I would typically look at their resume, and I would ask them something along the lines of, and I'll give you a specific example. I had a, a an executive from Kodak who was going to interviewing for a job at Korea, and she had been a senior marketing person. And I said, you know, you worked at Kodak when you guys declared bankruptcy. What was that like? And she talked a little bit about it. And I said, yeah, but what I want to really know is, is why did you let it happen? And she said, excuse me. I said, yeah, why did you let the bankruptcy happen? And she says what do you mean? I I was just the marketing person. I said, yeah, I know, but you were paid to make the company successful. You were on the leadership team. Why didn't you stop it? She goes, but I wasn't the idea, but what could you have done to stop it? What could you have done better? What should you have done in hindsight? Because clearly bankruptcy wasn't the goal. And during the course of that conversation, she was able to start to think real time about, you know what? In hindsight, here are some things I could have done. And here are some things I could have gotten better at. And all I wanted to know was when she was challenged that way, could she react? And she ended up coming to work for me for many years. And she's a great friend of mine now and a brilliant marketing person. And she said she had never had an experience like that in an interview. And at first, she's like, do I really want to go work with these guys? Because I'm kind of put off. But I decided in that moment, I liked the challenge because I realized you were just asking me, could I be better than something?" And I was prepared to take that on. And that's all I wanted to have happen. So this was my, you know, this is part of my self-selection kind of approach, and you call it triage, and just to add a funny story to that. I tried to hire an expert early on in my CEO career to come in and help us think about organizational design. And this expert came in and spent a couple of days with me and my team, and they came back and they said, "You know?" I don't really think I can help you. I said, what? They said, yeah, you know, what you have here is a company and the organizational model or the mindset looks a lot more like an emergency room than it does a corporation. It says, you actually <laughs> have, you have a bunch of people here that love problem solving and they're happy to be dragged in and out of the middle of things to attack the problem, solve it and move on to the next patient. And she says, unless you want to radically change what you all, frankly, seem to like to do and what you're good at, and I think it actually applies to how you're approaching innovation, I can't help you because I would have no idea how to structure an organization that way. That's not what most people do. And it was in moments like that where I realized, wow, okay, there, there are some things that are not good about how we do it. right? There, by the way, there's you're also de-optimizing things when you choose that approach what i recognize is for the problem we were primarily trying to solve which is innovation we had created a cultural dynamic that was good at it. and it, by the way it also made us bad at some other things but so we chose not to change it.
1: yeah i think that's so important as well but also what that lady did where she she didn't become defensive she adapted and she realized actually this is somewhere where i'll grow and i'll change as a human being as well as a, an employee and uh, so many of us will complain about a company, because I'm sure people probably said about Cree, oh, those guys, they live in chaos. It's all over the place. But that is innovation. It's messy. It's, it is all over the place. And you want people who can thrive in the chaos. And that mindset of thriving in the chaos and what you talk about, the innovator spirit is so vital in today's world, because it's a mindset that's so much more important than technical skills for the future.
0: Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting about that. So the last thing I would ask, and I I said it to that person that day, but in all my interviews was, is I want you to think about if you really want to come work here. So everyone wanted me to meet these people to close them. And my close was the anti-close. It was, I want you to ask yourself, why do you want to come be a part of this team? We're going to, based on my experience, I'm pretty confident you will work harder here. And more hours than you ever did before. You're gonna get paid at the base level about the same. If we're really successful, you might make more money, but you can probably make as much or more money somewhere else. And so ask yourself are you motivated enough by the reward that comes from taking on these problems and trying to solve them to really wanna be here? Because if not, you would hate it. And I want you to take this seriously and ask yourself when you leave today if this place is for you, because if you come work here and that first time stuff starts going wrong and you're frustrated, I'm going to remind you of this conversation and remind you that you made a choice. So don't come whining to me about it. Because <laughs> and, and and I literally remember going back to people later going, Hey, we had this conversation. You chose. And what's interesting is the people that consciously chose it sometimes just needed a reminder. You're right. I chose it. I got to get back. And what I would say is. People that joined Cree early in their careers, this was pretty easy. As we got bigger and hired people that had much more experience in these other companies, they often needed that reminder more because the fact is, is that as much as they wanted to be a part of Cree, their belief system had been pre-wired by these other experiences.
1: That's what I'm talking about. The mental models are so difficult to to shake them. You need to you need to liquefy your mental model and and as you say, burn the box, so you're not thinking them within inside a box. Coming back to a couple of stories before we answer that question about the barbershops in New York, there's a moment from your Cree story that I feel is really worth sharing because we have a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs who listen to the show and you experienced this with Cree when your B2B clients would not purchase your product. So you decided instead to become a B2C business, a really brave move. (laughs)
0: Yeah, one probably out of desperation, but so we start out with LED lighting thinking it's going to happen. No one wants to do it. We have to build an LED lighting company and we find some success in commercial customers where they understand that I'm going to pay a little more for the LED lights, but I'm going to get a payback over time. And we said, okay, well, that's great. But, you know, we're really struggling to win the big projects because we don't have a brand and people are still pretty skeptical about this LED lighting technology because understand Lighting is a hundred-year-old industry at this point, and every other major lighting company is saying, you don't need LED lighting. So we're competing against everybody else saying, you don't want or need this. And we were debating what we could do to kind of build awareness for LED lighting. And we're thinking about that problem on one sense. And on the other sense, we're working and trying to sell our LEDs to the light bulb companies to try to get them to make LED light bulbs for consumers, because thinking that's a great market. And you know, people kept asking us if Cree was going to make one, and I kept saying, we're not going to do it because we don't know anything about the consumer market. And then one day, I'm sitting in my office, and the scientist walks in. His name is Jerry Negley, and Jerry was a brilliant pre scientist. And he says, hey, I-, I want to show you something. I said, okay. He goes, and you're not going to be expecting it. And I said, okay, well, what is it? And he goes, I've made an LED light bulb. And I said, I thought I'd said we weren't going to work on one of those. Oh, yeah. You said not to work on it, but no one else was figuring out. So I did it anyways. He goes, what do you think? And I'm looking at this light bulb and I'm going, shit. I've been for two years telling everyone we're not going to do this. And he's actually got something we now are not, we now need to go do. And in my mind, it wasn't because I thought we could become a great consumer products company. I realized that he was holding physical representation of what this technology looked like it was a way that everyone could relate to this idea that we've been trying to sell all these other ways and then because when you it would look just like a regular light bulb when you screwed it in it worked normal it dimmed i mean it was essentially a light bulb but it was led and when i realized he had it we decided all right this is a pretty crazy idea but we're going to get into the consumer lighting business now I had one advantage to doing this is that uh, I had a group of people, and Cree's over a billion dollar company at this time. So we took a small group of people that were very much the non-conformers. One of them was a former founder of the company. We sent them off to do this in private, and I didn't engage the rest of the company in this. We created a startup team to do it. But more importantly, we early on went to my board, and we told the board, we've got this idea, and here's the thinking. We're not sure how good we're going to be in consumer products, but we believe this light bulb could be the single best marketing strategy to change people's perception of not only LED lighting, but Cree as a brand. We can truly make ourselves the leader. So think of this not as a consumer product strategy, but as a marketing strategy that is paid for through the sale of the products. And luckily on my board was a guy named Bob Tillman. And Bob Tillman, is the person that took Lowe's Home Improvement from a small little regional company into Home Depot's big competitor in the United States. And he said, if you walked into my office and showed me that product, I'd sign up for it tomorrow. It's so rare that we have something that could change a category and you've got one. He goes, and he basically, without us even asking for his help, he convinced the rest of the board, I'm telling you guys, trust them this is an idea worth pursuing. And so we just went for it. So we, in secret over a year, took a prototype, figured out how to make it in production, which actually took many iterations, convinced Home Depot to put it in all their stores, even though I had a board member that used to run Lowe's. We had to build a factory to make these, which we put in Durham, North Carolina. I don't think anyone had put a light bulb factory in the United States in 30 years at that point. And we needed to figure out how we were going to do an ad campaign. So we developed a set of national TV ads. We did it all in secret. A year later, we come out and launch the product. And it turns out to be this incredible success because we never made a lot of money selling the light bulbs, but the process of putting them on a shelf and letting people walk into the Home Depot and see one made them realize, wow, I might be willing to try this. And the key was making sure it was priced under $10. So we knew that was scary. So it was $9.97. Once they took one home and tried it, people came back and bought more and it built on itself. But so our problem was, like any innovation, it's great to talk about it. You have to show it to someone. You have to let them experience it to get them to buy into it. And the light bulb simply became a giant marketing strategy for LED lighting. And you know, if you walk down the aisles today, you, there really aren't anything but LED light bulbs. But when we were doing that, Most people thought it would never work and thought we were crazy. They're literally most of the large light bulb companies would have bet you at that time that we would never convert to LED lighting because what they had was good enough. And so that was an amazing experience for us and you know taught us all kinds of things about not only the technology, but the innovator spirit isn't about inventing the product. It's about solving a problem and really helping the customer see the value. And so so much of what I try to remind people is. Invention and innovation, people think of the same thing. Well, yeah, they're both something new, but the innovation is the solving a problem and creating value. And it so often doesn't have to do anything with the technology. It's the creating not only the mindset of people to do it, but helping the customer see it in different ways. And so, so much of what I try to help people think about is how do you do that part, right? This is about shaping people's thinking, not just what they're doing.
1: I had way more questions for you, but it's a really nice way to finish on this idea of the innovative spirit. And I'll just say this. I think it's a credit to you also that when Jerry came with that idea that you didn't just tell him to put it away and stop playing on company time like had happened in so many business where they had invented their future, but they focused on their present or their past. We have some unfinished business, Chuck, and that is the question we posed at the start, which was: how many barbers are in New York City? Let's share how you actually go about this. Yeah. So
0: there's a couple of different approaches, but essentially my, my, my the way I start is this, how many people are in New York City? And it depends on which number you start with, right? Whether it's the greater metropolitan, but let's just start with a number of around 8 million. And so once you have the total, you say, well, how many of those go to barbers? And so my assumption is, generally speaking, women don't go to barbers, men do. So I would cut that number in half. So I maybe have 4 million potential customers. And then some percentage of those don't go either. They're either too young, too bald, or they do something else. They don't get their haircut. So I typically then take out somewhere, depending on roughly, let's call it about a third more of those people or a quarter more. So if we go from four, we're going to be down to let's call it a two and a half million people. And so now you have two and a half million people that could go to a barber. So now that you know what the demand is, how often do they get their haircut? Well, I would say probably about once a month. So I need. Two and a half million people to be able to get their haircut once a month. What's the capacity? So if I go to a barber shop, it typically takes a barber, when I've been, about 20 to 30 minutes. And if they're working for eight hours a day, that means they can do somewhere between 16 and 20 haircuts a day. So let's just say we use the 16 number. And then you go, okay, so they can cut 16 people's hair a day. So how many barbers does it take? Except, wait a minute, they're not going to be full all the time right? So there's not a hundred percent capacity. So I'm actually assuming when I go into the barber shop, depending on the time of the day, sometimes you're waiting if it's after work. And if it's in the middle of the day, you see a couple of barbers sit in their chair, reading the paper. So I'm going to assume that about a third of the time they're actually not cutting any hair. So I take out a third of that capacity. You divide it out and you typically come up with a number depending on which of those assumptions you make somewhere in the seven, 8,000 barber range. And people then always ask me, so how many barbers are there in New York? And the truth is, I don't know. Because it wasn't meant to actually figure it out. It was meant to see if you could figure it out. And and just so you know, I've recently taken to using this question to uh, interviewing uh, boyfriends of one of my daughters. <laughs> and uh, I, it's a unique approach. But I will say the last two times I tried it, I got some really good sports out of it. and Unfortunately, it didn't work out for other reasons, but they were great sports about it and actually enjoyed answering the questions. So to me, it's one of my favorite ways to get a conversation
1: started. (laughs) Fantastic! Well, it was a great way to get today's conversation started. Chuck, where can people find out more about you, your book, your work, et cetera?
0: So the easiest way is to check my website, chuckswoboda.com. The book is available pretty much anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and it will be in bookstores starting on May 5th. Uh, I'm also doing a lot of writing, so you're welcome to follow my uh, weekly articles on Forbes or follow me on social media at the Chuck Swoboda or on LinkedIn.
1: And also then your podcast as well.
0: Oh, that's right. Thank you. for. I, I would be remiss not to mention my podcast, which is Innovators on Tap, which you can find on Spotify, Apple, or just about anywhere there are podcasts,
1: and we do that once a week. Author of The Innovator Spirit, Discover the Mindset to Pursue the Impossible, Chuck Swoboda, Thank you for joining us.
0: It has been a great pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you.